Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey everyone, welcome back to the 41st episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. So good morning to you, Matt. Good morning, Mark. We've had so much going on in the first quarter. I think uh, today's podcast, listeners are going to get a lot out of it. Yeah, yeah. So second day in a row where we're doing a podcast. So desperate times call for desperate measures, but there's just a lot of information that we want to get out to people. So absolutely. This is a time where we need to be communicating with um, clients and prospective clients that listen to us on this podcast with, uh, you know, a lot of the data that we provide. So I think it's going to be a great, great one. Yeah. So uh, as always, we'll take the first few minutes to recap the performance for the month and the year of the major indexes that we track. And these numbers are as of the market close on March 31st, and the data is from stockcharts.com. S&P 500 index was down 12.51% for the month and down 20% for the year. The Dow Jones index down 13.74% for the month and 23.20% for the year. The NASDAQ down 10.12% for the month and down 14.18% for the year. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 index is down 21.48% for the month and down 30.64% for the year. The International Index X United States down 14.8% for the month and down 24.05% for the year. The three-month T-bill currently yielding 0.12%. The two-month, or excuse me, the two-year Treasury uh, yielding 0.23%, and the 10-year yielding 0.70%. Um, so yields have come up a little bit from the last couple of weeks where the three-month uh, went negative at one point, but that is back into positive territory uh, at least for right now. Um, so going into big news or headlines, current events from the past week, Matt and I did a podcast yesterday surrounding the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Stimulus Act of 2020, also known as the CARES Act. Um, but again, President Trump signed this last week. So if you want, you can go check that out. It is episode uh, number 40. And you can go listen to our deep dive into that if you want to figure out how that bill will impact you. Uh, the second thing, um, markets have rebounded off their lows, but there's still a good chance, I think, Matt, that we retest those lows at some point in the near future. Yeah. Um, volatility has come down significantly the past few days, so we'll see if that holds. It would be positive if it did. But again, I don't think we're out of the woods just yet with that. Yeah, um, I would agree. So, um, you know, we fully expect markets to continue to chop back and forth, but um, they did rebound uh, about 20% off their lows, but uh, have found resistance. And uh, as of right now, I think we're down about 3% this morning right now, starting yeah, beginning, the new quarter. Yeah, beginning new quarter. Yeah. So I think, you know, what is the market watching right now, Mark? 
So for listeners, I think there's a couple of things. Obviously, first, it's the COVID-19 case counts and the case curve. Uh, administration says, you know, the peak is going to be in a couple of weeks. So expect the headlines to get worse before they get better. Um, Federal Reserve. You know, the Federal Reserve um, has provided stimulus to stabilize the monetary and banking system. So unlike 08, where, you know, a lot of the monetary and banking system money froze up beginning in August, you know, the Fed didn't take action until Thanksgiving in 08, where this time around, they've been very proactive. So it's a lot different scenario, okay, which I think will aid in the recovery. Second thing is what I would call congressional bills. So they passed the CARES Act, as you mentioned. And again, listeners, I think Mark did a phenomenal job yesterday laying out that act and how it can affect individuals and small business owners. And again, that uh, act focuses on temporary economic relief for Main Street, Mark, as you know. And Congress is already talking about another bill that's going to focus on the recovery aspect, okay? Part of that most likely will include an infrastructure spending bill. Um, last night during a press conference uh, with the Trump administration, um, they're mentioning that the Republicans, a part of the recovery bill, are wanting uh, $750 billion for infrastructure spending. The Democrats want closer to a billion, and Trump uh, wants to swing for the fences. He wants to do $2 billion. And uh, with interest rates as low as they are, that could make sense to me, Okay. Um, so again, what's the market watching? COVID-19 case counts, case curve, Federal Reserve, congressional bills. And then Mark, to a lesser extent, we're going to have the beginning of the first quarter earnings season, which begins in two weeks. So what that means for listeners is that publicly traded companies have to report their earnings every three months. So the first quarter was Jan 1 through the end of March. And then a lot of companies are going to report those earnings beginning the third week of April through about the second week of May. So we're going to see how those companies did financially, if they're going to provide us guidance for the rest of the year, how are they um, getting through uh, the quarantine. You know, there's going to be a lot of analyst questions during those conference calls. And that's something that we're going to be watching. And then to a lesser extent, the last thing I want to make a comment on is what I would call employment figures. Now there's two way to kind of there's two ways to gauge this listeners. First is every month on the first Friday of every month the government releases the previous month's employment data. That's how many jobs were gained or lost, the unemployment rate, uh, personal income numbers up or down. And then every Thursday morning at 8:30 is what we would call initial jobless claims. And so you mentioned uh, in the intro to the um podcast yesterday, we saw a big jump in initial jobless claims, no surprise. And you'll probably see another big number uh, tomorrow, right? It's expected. Yeah, right. So what I'd like to do for listeners now, Mark, is kind of lay out four main questions that investors have right now, just to help give perspective. Make sense? So the first is, have we seen the bottom yet? Right? That's a question going through a lot of investors minds. So the market bottom so far on March 23rd, and as you uh, mentioned in the intro, Mark, the market has rallied about 20% off that bottom through the end of the quarter, right? So my response is, after this late quarter run-up, we could see another round of selling and most likely a test of that March 23rd bottom, as you alluded to. So we're not out of the woods yet, 
but we are making progress in what I would call the bottoming process. We're slowly seeing some signs, some positive signs, which we will discuss in a bit um, when we discuss research and tweets, but we are starting to see some positive signs of a bottoming process. Mm -hmm. It's gonna take time, and I'll say it one more time, we're not out of the woods yet. Yeah, and I think it's important to point out that we could even undercut you know, the lows made on March 23rd too. That's not out of the question either. Not out of the question. So next question, number two, how long, Mark, will this last? Okay, so be very blunt, unknown. What we do know from a previous economic shocks is that the stock market usually bottoms out and starts recovering before the economic data does. There's a lot of cash on the sidelines trying to time this, and we feel most of it, Mark, is going to be unsuccessful, and they're going to end up buying back at higher prices. This is not an environment to try and time. We would recommend staying diversified for your risk tolerance and goals. For a stock portion of one's portfolio, this is the time, or I'm sorry, the type of market, I should say, where we believe being in high-quality companies that have the ability for their earnings to recover the quickest is going to have the best share price performance. So this is not a time, in my opinion, to be overweight travel or leisure, for example, as those names have a higher risk, higher reward scenario, in our opinions. This is a time, in my opinion, you stick with quality names. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Third question that I think are going through investors' heads. Will the market come back, right? Historically, it always has. But the time it took, Mark, varies based upon the economic shock. I'm optimistic that the recovery should be on the faster side once the case counts subside based upon the extreme measures the Federal Reserve has taken and what Congress has done and most likely will be continue to do to stabilize and provide incentives for the economy to recover. I think that's a big positive, and that's a big positive that we really didn't have in 08 and 09. Congress and the Fed was very reactionary. I think this time around, the Fed and Congress is being a lot more proactive. And that's a big, big difference. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, for sure. Last question. If someone's taking income from their portfolio, how is this sell-off affecting that? That's a question, especially for retirees. So most properly diversified portfolios are not 100% stock. Hence, this is a time to take any large withdrawals. In my opinion, from the more conservative section of a portfolio, such as bonds, and let the stocks, which have been beaten down, give them time to recover. While some companies have cut their dividends, most have not. So clients are going to continue to have portfolio income hitting their account every month. Bond interest, dividends, that stuff is still coming in for the most part, right? So... Last item uh, I want to uh, discuss before moving on to tweets and research, a reminder that just because the S&P 500 index is down 20% so far this year does not necessarily mean your portfolio is down that much. That's a big, big key to this. Mm -hmm. Okay? Yeah, yeah, I agree. So I'm going to move on to... Um, Tweets, research, and articles that caught our eye over the past week. I have a couple that I'd like to hit, Mark, if I could, sir. Yeah, go for it. Uh, first is um, press release from Johnson & Johnson on March 30th. Uh, they are the lead vaccine candidate for COVID-19. 
They plan as of right now to start human trials no later than September. Said that once they get approval, they can create more than 1 billion doses of the vaccine via their rapid scaling system in a relatively short time period. I want to add some verbiage to that. Last night during the press conference, Dr. Fauci was speaking and mentioned that if some of these lead vaccine candidates are starting to show promise, they would be willing, if the data was correct in their opinion, to fast track approval for human trials. So just let you know that they're going to be as aggressive as they can in trying to tackle an end solution to this, because as you very well know, Mark, this could come around again next quote unquote flu season. Right. 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 Okay. Next point. This is a note from Deutsche Bank on March 30th, and I'm going to quote it. Last Thursday's jobless claims indicate 9 million people are currently without work. The fiscal package we got combined with Fed initiatives should begin to slow the pace of layoffs over the coming weeks. We have we likely have the worst behind us. So, again, you're going to see more initial jobless claims. Are they going to surpass last week? It's possible. This uh, DB note is indicating that they think, you know, the initial hit is there. It's still going to be big numbers for a while, but not as big, most likely, as last Thursday. Again, that's their opinion. Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting opinion. And I'm not pushing back on you. I think I want to push back on DB a little bit here. But, you know, with regards to how we talked about that, there are some issues, I think, with the stimulus plan and getting money into people's pockets. You know, I think that, again, this is just my opinion. I'm just taking the other side uh, to, to DB. But I think that, you know, you're going to see the pace of layoffs potentially increase over the next couple of weeks. I think it's an excellent kind of point, Mark. What I'll kind of say back is with the Payroll Protection Act, um, there's these grants that are offered that these employers can get um, two and a half times, um, two and a half months worth of their previous 12 months payroll. So Mm -hmm. two and a half months worth of money. And if they keep everyone on the payroll past the end of June, they don't have to pay that loan back. It becomes a grant. Right. And I think that will severely limit uh, initial jobless claims if they didn't do that. Yeah, no, I so agree. That, that could really skew the numbers. Yeah, I, I agree, too. <clears throat> I think there's there might be a little bit of lag in that process, though, because people have to apply for those loans and, you know, get those loans and get the money. Yep. So I think over the next, you know, like we've been saying, the next couple of weeks, I think you're going to see these numbers come in pretty, pretty devastating to a lot of people. I agree. Now, the one thing I am happy about uh, with initial jobless, uh, what they did in the bill, and Mark, you talked about this yesterday on podcast number 40, is they're making the employment benefits instantaneous. You don't have to wait that one or two weeks, depending upon the state. And in addition, the Fed's kicking in an extra 600 bucks. They're paying for the first week where most states make you wait a week. So a lot of that will help Main Street keep the lights on, keep food on the table, and I think that's a great thing that Congress did. Yeah, I think it is too. That's that's one of the, the biggest benefits of the bill, I think, that at least that I that I read in it. Yep. Got a couple more, Mark. Uh Argus Research, um, March thirty first, talking about insider buying. Okay. They note that in the last several weeks, insider buying in general is drastically above average, signaling that higher ups and publicly traded companies are taking advantage of the stock market sell off to buy their company shares on the cheap. You know, it it went into more detail. I'm paraphrasing um, the note, but it was massive insider buying the last couple of weeks. 
Now, part of that is probably some um, uh, these insiders trying to get ahead of the blackout periods of Q1 earnings. And so what that means for listeners is roughly two weeks before earnings, you know, these insiders can't be buying their own stock. Companies can't be buying back their own stock. And I think, you know, they probably sat there and said, well, could it get worse? Yeah, but this is our only window of opportunity to buy it. So some of that could have been because that's the window that they had to do it, but they're putting their money where their mouth is. So it's at least one encouraging data point. Yeah, I think that 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 is that it's encouraging to see CEOs and, you know, C-suite executives, you know, like you said, putting their money where their mouth is. And I think not only is that good for um, the market and their individual share prices, but I think that's good for the employees of that company. Absolutely. um, That give them confidence that, you know, hey, we're going to survive. We're going to get through this. Um, It's going to be tough. But at the end of the day, we're going to come out of this thing alive and well. Absolutely. So I Absolutely. think that's a big confidence booster for a lot of people. Um, next one is from Bespoke Investment Group. So last week on podcast 39, we had uh, uh, Paul on from Bespoke Investment Group. We think highly of them. And really quick, Matt, it just came to me not to interrupt you, but um, there's a really good website. It's called Insider Arbitrage, where you can go in and look up individual stocks and see who like which insiders have been buying or selling shares. I like that. Um, So if you go in there and you're curious about a stock that you're thinking about, you can go in and see the insider transactions and it gives you a a pretty good breakdown of that. Yeah. So if you work for XYZ company, you're wondering, hey, are they putting their money where their mouth is? They can check that out. Right. Yep. That's excellent, Mark. Thank you. So uh, next notes from Bespoke Investment Group. This is from March 31st. Longest streak of oversold readings since 2008. Okay. So going back to post-World War II era, Mark, there's been 20 occurrences where this has happened. The one-year average return for the S&P 500 index was 13.11%. It was positive 17 out of 20 times. Coming out of the occurrence in 2008, the S&P rallied 23% over the next 12 months. So for listeners that heard our Bespoke podcast number 39, they'll understand the reason that we quote these things is that the reasons for the sell-offs and the economic shocks and the corrections, those are different reasons. But the outcomes tend not to be. And right now, I know it is so hard for people to look past next week. Heck, look past today, right? But you got to look back in history and things are not always going to be this bad, right? And I think this bespoke research helps give perspective. And that's why I like quoting it. Right. Yeah. No, it's good. So uh, personal observations I want to throw out there for listeners intraday volatility. The actual percentage movement is coming down in in stocks over the last several trading days. Encouraging. I'm expecting some more volatility beginning the quarter here. As you know, we have a fresh set of three months, you could see uh, a risk off trade for a couple of weeks wouldn't surprise me. Trading volumes have uh, have come down. That's encouraging. Um, And then per our podcast released on Tuesday, Mark and I talked about the CARES Act. If you compare once again the congressional responses to 9-11 and the great financial crisis, this time around, they went early, Mark, they went big, and that should help cushion the blow 
in my opinion. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I would like to turn it back over to you, Mark, to discuss the financial planning topic of the week. Yeah. So kind of switching gears here. I know that, um, you know, the past several weeks, everything has been, you know, kind of put in the back seat compared to the coronavirus news and headlines. So I thought that it would be um, good to kind of bring perspective back to um, something that passed at the end of 2019, which is the SECURE Act, which me and you discussed several times before on this podcast. But again, it's taken a backseat to the coronavirus news, but it is something that people need to be thinking about. So um, this week's topic comes from an article written on Think Advisor by Robert Bloink and William Burns, and they discuss reviewing beneficiary designations for IRA accounts. So the article is titled, A Big IRA Question, Do I Change the Beneficiary Post-Secure Act? So again, I wanted to discuss a topic this week that people can control. With everything going on in the markets right now, I believe focusing on what you can control is more important than ever right now. And your beneficiary designations is something that you can 100% control uh, and review and change right now if you wanted to. Mark, I think you're spot on. So um, diving into the article here, they open up by saying the SECURE Act limited the stretch tax deferral benefits of inherited IRAs to 10 years for most non-spouse beneficiaries beginning in 2020. Although there are no RMD requirements during the 10-year period, the potential for a substantial tax hit in year 10 means that current IRA owners should revisit their beneficiary designations now. And just to review for people, prior to 2020, if someone passed away and left you as the beneficiary of the IRA, for this example, let's say it was a grandparent that passed away um, and they left the um, the IRA to uh, a grandchild, okay. right? That grandchild was able to stretch that account over their lifetime. The government would make you take a required minimum distribution based on your life expectancy, you know, so you're able to keep that money invested and just take a small percentage amount each and every year. Correct. And that was a huge benefit to people because, you know, they're just taking these small RMDs, so it's not going to be that much of a tax hit. And if people don't need the money, they're able to keep it invested. Well, now in 2020, if that same grandparent passed away and left the account to the grandchild, the IRS is going to make you take that money out 10 years after the grandparent passed away. Yeah, it's, that's the window you have. And so you don't have to take it uh, equally over 10 years. Just you have to take it all out from point A to point B. You have that amount of time to do it. Right. To, and, to cause a taxable event. Exactly. And there are no longer required minim, minimum distributions. So if you inherit, uh, for, to keep our example going, if you inherit a retirement account from a grandparent, you don't have to take anything out within the first 10 years. But at the end of that 10th year, the government is going to make you liquidate that account, which means that that account becomes fully taxable at your ordinary income tax rate for that year. And if you keep it invested over that 10 years, statistically, you know, it'll probably be higher. Right. So it's going to be even more. Right, exactly. So and with tax rates as low as they are, 
you know, reversion to the mean at some point, taxation rates are going to go up. Yeah. So people need to consider this, um, you know, when they are uh, looking at their beneficiary designation. So there are some exceptions to this rule, and they're classified as eligible designated beneficiaries, Matt. And reading from the article, eligible designated beneficiaries may continue to use their life expectancy to determine inherited IRA distributions. Again, these list of people who I'm about to list off um, are the people that can still stretch the inherited IRAs over their lives and are not subject to the 10-year distribution rule. My ears are perking up. <laughs> so these eligible designated beneficiaries include surviving spouses, minor children of the account owner, although the life expectancy rule applies only until the child reaches the age of majority, at which the uh, point the 10-year elimination period applies. Number three is disabled beneficiaries. Number four is chronically ill beneficiaries. And number five is beneficiaries who are less than 10 years younger than the current account owner. Okay. Okay. So all of those people who I just listed are still able to stretch the inherited IRA over their lifetime and are not subject to the 10-year rule. Okay. So for example, I have a twin brother. Um, right now he's listed as the beneficiary of my IRA. So if I were to pass away, he would classify as an eligible designated beneficiary because he is the same age as me. He's not more than 10 years younger than me. So he would get to stretch this over his lifetime. I think that's great. So, um, so that's a thing to consider there as well. Another point from the article is if the IRA designated beneficiary is currently the spouse of the account owner, no major changes are needed to be made. It just gets turned over to their name, right? Yes. So after death, the surviving spouse has the right to roll over the inherited IRA into their own IRA, and it just continues Life to continues exist. On. As if it was the spouse's IRA anyways. To begin with. Yeah. yeah. So usually for people... And I'm saying usually it makes sense to list your spouse as the primary beneficiary of the IRA, especially in light of this legislation, especially in light of this legislation, especially from a tax standpoint, it makes the most sense to do that. OK, so an idea I would like to th throw out there, Mark, is yeah. let's say it's a it's a second marriage or there's some unique circumstances, you know, get creative with it list maybe that IRA to the spouse, and then maybe list some after-tax assets to the kids directly yeah. that supersedes the will or trust. Right. So there's ways that you can designate certain pieces of wealth to go to specific people. And what you're insinuating is that it makes sense from a tax efficiency to leave that to a spouse and maybe list something else for those kids. Yeah. Just yeah, an idea. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so kind of discussing non-spouse uh, beneficiaries for a second, if a child, grandchild, or a sibling of the account owner is named as the beneficiary, the situation becomes a little more complex. So only children of the account owner, like I mentioned before, qualify as an eligible designated beneficiary if they are minors when they inherit the account. So even so, Minor children of the account owner do not get the full benefit of the life expectancy stretch 
that existed pre-Secure Act because once the child reaches the age of majority, the life expectancy rule goes away and then the 10-year clock begins to run in which they would have to distribute that full account balance at the end of year 10. Okay. Okay. So moving on to, I think, the major impact that not a lot of people are realizing right now is if you have a trust listed as your IRA beneficiary, okay? This is a biggie. So for trust beneficiaries, the rules have also become more complex. Under the old rules, trusts could be listed as the beneficiary of the IRA, and RMDs could be paid to the beneficiary of the trust if the trust was labeled as a see-through or conduit trust, okay? So a popular use of this, Matt, would be, hey, I have a minor child that I want to leave my IRA to, but I don't think they, they can, can handle inherit, inheriting- dollars at 18. Exactly. So what the trust language provides is, for the trustee only to distribute the required minimum distribution amount every year and nothing else. So that kind of controls how much money the minor or the beneficiary would get from the trust just because they don't have free reign on it. So my comment there is for listeners, I call that the, the price of admission, meaning you know, when you have an immense amount of wealth go to the next generation and if uh, the child is younger, you know, give them some income every year, let them kind of get their feet out of themselves, you know, maybe that money's not going to be spent as wisely, and then give them the principal distributions later in life when you think they're going to be a little more um, um, appropriate with that money, right? You exactly. know, a little more responsible per se. Yeah. So but now, you know, the, that benefit kind of goes away. Because number one, there aren't any required minimum distributions left. So if you have a trust that lists the language that the trustee can only send the beneficiary money that is from the RMD, that trust needs to be updated because there are they no the longer thing, they RMDs. They get the whole thing at 18. Yeah, exactly. So either way, that trust language needs to be um, updated. So and, and because of that, there's, there's kind of two types of conduit or pass-through trusts that I think um, people would have, and that's kind of discretionary and non-discretionary conduit trusts. So I would label discretionary conduit trusts as the trustee has the ability to send the beneficiary extra distributions in addition to the RMD that, uh, you know, the trust language would outline, right? So if the trustee has that discretionary ability, then, you know, they can continue to, you know, push out money every year until year 10. Um, so they don't have that huge tax liability in year 10. Yep. But if it's a non-discretionary trust, as the trust language is written that the trustee can only send money to the beneficiary from the RMDs each and every year, that means the trustee cannot push more money out to try to defer that tax liability so you're not all hit with it in year 10. So you really need to review your trust language to make sure everything um, is as it should be because more likely than not, 90% of the time, either way, even if you don't change anything, the trust language needs to be updated because there are no longer required minimum distributions uh, dealing with inherited IRA accounts. 
So for listeners, you know, in, in our client base, um, uh, Mark and Aaron have been very proactive in reaching out to all of our clients that have listed a, a trust as a as a contingent beneficiary. And I would highly encourage you, if you have some questions regarding what Mark is mentioning, you are welcome to reach out to us. You can email Mark at mark at jessupwealthmanagement.com. Listeners, we have an in-house paraplanner, Aaron, Aaron Kramer. Aaron is extremely good at what he does. He can assist um, with, with some of those questions as well. So I'd highly encourage you that if you're sitting there, you're listening to this and you're like, you know what? I don't know if I got this set up right. Reach out to us. Let us help you. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing, the other pushback that I've gotten recently is, well, Mark, you know, I want my IRA to go to a trust. So um, the assets are protected from creditors of the beneficiary. Well, that's that's fine, but if the creditor is smart enough, they know that money will be available at the end of 10 years. So either way, they're going to be able to go after it, right? Good point. So that's not really a valid argument to me anymore that this is uh, more of a creditor protection issue um, because that money is going to be available eventually. And again, if creditors know enough about this act, they'll wait until the money is available and then they'll go after it. Sure. So- um, just wanted to point that out as well. So again, this is a good time to focus on what you can control. Your beneficiaries are something you can control. I think this is a good time to check to make sure you have a beneficiary listed on your IRA accounts or any investment account, just to make sure that those assets don't go through probate if something were to happen to you, because that is a very long and drawn out process. So uh, if you have some free time this weekend, I would recommend logging into your investment account or your IRA account. Make sure you have a primary benef beneficiary listed. Make sure you have a contingent beneficiary listed and see what makes the most sense for your situation. Again, nine times out of 10, I believe it makes sense to list your spouse if you are married as the primary beneficiary because from a tax standpoint and an efficiency standpoint, you're going to get the most bang for your buck if you want to look at it that way. Absolutely. And, you know, for someone that's not doesn't have online access, you should be able to look at your IRA statement, your most recent, and usually it's near the end of the statement. They kind of recertify who you have listed as Benny's. That's another way, Mark, that a lot of custodians put that on their statements. That's another way they could find out. Okay. Okay. Great. Uh, what I'll throw out there also is if they do want to make a change, they'll most likely have to contact their advisor or their custodian, and there'll be a form they'll most likely have to complete. There are some custodians that allow you to do it online, but a lot are still going to be paper forms on that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, we do have a question this week, Matt. So um, the question comes from Dennis, and Dennis is a great listener and contributor to the podcast. So thank you for your question, Dennis. Um, Dennis question is this, could you talk a bit about the differences between common stock and preferred stock as to what you might see in performance? So I'll start and then you please, can yeah, you start now. I'll fill in any gaps. So Dennis, the major differences I think between common stock and preferred stock is that common stock comes with voting rights, right? So if there's, um, a change in the, uh, board of directors, you have the ability to vote, for who you want to be in the new board of directors, for example. Um, with preferred shares, there are no voting rights. And I know for most people that doesn't really make a huge difference. 
um, because a lot of people don't vote anyways. But um, the first difference is that common shareholders have voting rights um, and preferred shareholders do not have voting rights. Okay. The second major difference is that preferred shareholders in the event of liquidation or bankruptcy of a company preferred shareholders are paid out before common shareholders 100 percent or as much as they can before common get anything right so usually in a liquidity event or a bankruptcy it goes creditors get paid first then the bondholders then the preferred shareholders and then the common stock shareholders if there's anything left so they have um, a higher priority in terms of getting something out of their investment okay the third major difference is that I would say in normal market conditions, which we are not in normal market conditions right We've now. highlighted that multiple times on this podcast. Preferred shares of stock tend to be less volatile and more stable than common shares of stock. Okay. And usually prefer- preferred shares come with a higher um, income value for people. So preferred shares usually have a dividend yield that is higher um, than common shareholders, right? Or, you know, preferred shares, they pay a dividend and some common shares of companies don't pay a dividend. Um, so I think that's something important to consider as well. So I would say again, in normal market times, I think preferred shares are viewed as more conservative than uh, common shares. Um, And I think preferred shares are even really considered fixed income investments, right? Mm -hmm. Because again, in normal market conditions, preferred shares over what we've seen um, in the past 20, 30, 40, 50 years don't seem to fluctuate that much. But during times of economic intense shock, volatility and economic shock, right you're going to see preferred shares and bonds move, um, you know, maybe not as much as stock, but more than historically they have over the past 50 years. I think you did an excellent job summarizing that. So is there anything you want to add to that? The only thing I want to add to that, Dennis, is a lot of preferreds don't have a maturity, meaning they have their perpetual, but they do have call dates. It's very common. So um, what you'll see a lot is um, ABC company issues a preferred, they raise money, then they have to pay interest on that. And then whatever stated interest rate at a certain date, they could call it, meaning they buy it back and you have no choice. But because they're technically perpetual, they can be sensitive to changes in interest rates. So since the coupons, a lot of them are fixed, If you go through a cycle where interest rates really, really go up, that could have an adverse effect on the share price, just like it happens to bonds. Right. So that's the only other comment I want to throw out there. You did a phenomenal job on that. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, again, people use preferred shares, um, Dennis, more as I think a fixed income investment um, than than anything else. Um, So, you know, you would fully expect that the pure price performance a common stock is usually going to be better than that of a preferred stock. I'm not talking about the total return. I'm talking about the price of that share of preferred or common stock. So, um, and the common with that higher returns come higher volatility. So I think those are the major differences there, Dennis. So I hope, hope we answered your question. Thank you for the question, Dennis. 
Um, so before we wrap up, Matt, do you have any final thoughts or anything um, to add here? You know, Mark, I just want to kind of reiterate to, to listeners, you know, we're, we're not out of the woods yet. You know, we still have negative headlines to get through over the coming weeks. You know, the market seems to be doing a better job being forward looking rather than, say, reacting to every headline. You know, the, the bottoming process and the recovery, it's going to take some time. I think, though, Mark, this is a time to focus on quality, focus on industries and companies that you think are um, going to recover the quickest, their earnings are going to recover the quickest. Think of companies that will have pent up demand once the social distance distancing guidelines are terminated. Okay. So, you know, right now, I think it pays to be a contrarian, you know, think of it as the Warren Buffett style investing, be greedy when others are fearful, and be fearful when others are greedy. You know, this is a time to be in the market and ride the recovery in the coming quarters in our opinion, you know, timing the bottom is impossible. So I'll say this, find a good money manager that you trust that keeps you in a nice diversified portfolio that is in line with your risk tolerance and goals. And that's what I would leave the listeners with today. Okay. All right. I'm going to leave them with what I've said over the past couple of weeks, focus on what you can control. Right? That's very good, Mark. Okay. All right, everybody. Well, thank you for tuning in to the 41st episode of the Independent Advisors podcast. We will be back with you all next week, most likely on Thursday morning. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. And also check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. Here you'll find links to every episode of The Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words, questions, and topics in the subject line to mark at jessupwealthmanagement.com, and we'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.